Thank you very much, Phyllis. Uh, shall we turn, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, reading from verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou should live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus, answering, said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw me, he passed by on the other side, likewise a Levite, a lawyer. When he was at the place, and came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now these thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go thou and do likewise. Trust the Holy Spirit will add his blessing to the reading of his word. The story was told in answer to a man who was quite sure that he could do something to inherit eternal life. And who along with that personal complacency in his own ability to find his own way to heaven, he had very little use for the Lord Jesus. It says that he tempted him. And in the original text, it's a very strong word. It's the word Jesus used to the devil when he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This man thought that he could set a trap for the Lord Jesus. And in response to this man's approach, Having first proved to him it was impossible for him to get to heaven by keeping the law 
I mean, which one of us this morning would dare to stand before God and say, I've always loved you with all my heart. And I've always loved you with all my strength. And I've always loved you with all my soul. And I've always loved you with all my strength. You know perfectly well you've never done that. You've broken the first and greatest commandment. The man or woman, boy or girl, who breaks the first and greatest commandment is the first and greatest sinner. You haven't even kept the second one, neither have I. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you loved your neighbor as yourself, every time you cut your lawn, you go over and cut his. A.P. <laughs> Gibbs used to tell the story. He imagined a man coming home one night from work, and as he come and got off the bus and coming up the hill, he sees some smoke. And he says to himself, I think there's a house on fire up there. And he rushes around the corner. He says, yes, on my street. And he hurries up. He says, oh, good. I'm so glad it's my house. <laughs> Not my neighbor's. You don't love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Neither do I. Neither does anybody else. You've broken the first commandment. You've broken the second commandment. How this fellow thought he could get to heaven by keeping the commandments only he he knew many people still think the same in spite of the fact it's impossible to keep either the first commandment or the second commandment let alone all the rest of them in any case the Lord Jesus told him this lovely little story it's a story in three parts first of all he tells us about our ruin the ruin of the human race a picture of ruin and then we have a picture of religion and a priest and a Levite. And then we have a picture of redemption. A certain man, it says, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. A picture of ruin. We notice two things about this man and they're characteristic of everybody. They're characteristic of the human race. The first thing we noticed was he was on a downward path. Now, quite popular to, contrary to popular philosophy and world religion, people imagine that the human race is getting better and better. That's, of course, the end result of over a hundred years of evolutionary propaganda. And we, we, we're taught in school now from the very first grade that the human race is in the process of evolution. That is, we're getting better and better. And one day we, we will finally arrive that we are captain of our own fate, masters of our own destiny, and that everything's getting better and better. Well, even five minutes look at the world in which we live ought to convince anybody that that's not true. The world isn't getting better and better. It's getting worse and worse. And it seems the more education we have, the more money we have, the more sophisticated we are, the worse we are. Getting worse and worse. Just think of the things that have happened in this century, in the lifetime of some of us. Delson and Dachau 
and Ravensbrück and Auschwitz. Think of that. And when the Chinese communists came to power, the first thing they did was murder in cold blood 15 million of their own people. Well, it's getting better and better, all right, isn't it? We now have arrived at that point in history where people who are under the, the curse and judgment of God for behaving like the people of Sodom actually parade with pride down our main streets. We're getting better and better. The Bible says that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. And that's what's happening. We're not getting better, we're getting worse. The world's not evolving, it's devolving. We're not going up, we're going down. And this man went down, it says, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was on a downward path. You measure that distance not simply in miles. You can measure it in miles. It was 18 miles. And in that, in that uh, short distance of just 18 miles, you dropped from 3,500 feet above sea level up on the mountains where Jerusalem sat enthroned, you went down, 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 down. By the time you reached Jericho, you were 825 feet below sea level. In that short distance, just 18 miles, you actually dropped 4,325 feet, if you're going to measure it in terms of miles. He sure went down. But... The point is, of course, that you don't measure that in terms of miles. You measure it in terms of morals. And this fellow went down, down, down. Jerusalem was the city of peace. It was the place where God had put its name. A city associated with Melchizedek. The place where God sat enthroned in better times in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, upon the mercy seat, upon the ark, between the cherubim, in the temple. The place to which the tribes came annually to worship. The place of blessing, the place where God gathered himself with his people. This man that turned his back on all that, and he was going down, down, down to Jericho, the city that was under the curse of God. When the children of Israel came from Egypt to Canaan, and crossed over Jordan, and stood confronting their first obstacle in the conquest of Canaan, the very thing that stood against them was that great city of Jericho. It symbolized all the wickedness of this world. In fact, God warned them that when they had finished the destruction of that city, they were never, ever to rebuild it. And if they did re rebuild it, it would be built under his curse. Well, they did rebuild it. As a matter of fact, it was a favorite living place at this time in Palestinian history for a vast number of priests. And this man was going down from Jerusalem 
to Jericho. His back was towards the place where God had put his name and where God had promised to meet with his people. And his face was towards that wicked city that lived under the curse of God, the city of Jericho. It was a downward path. And ever since the fall of man, the human race is pursuing a downward path. We're all pursuing that downward path by nature. We're not getting better, we're getting worse. We're not getting younger, we're getting older. We're accumulating an ever-increasing amount of liability for which we'll have to answer one day at the judgment bar of God. He went down. It was not only a, 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 a downward path, it was a dangerous path. It says he fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. This man had fallen into dangerous hands. They robbed him and left him to die. Well, of course, that's exactly what's happened to the human race. It's happened in the Garden of Eden. The great plunderer came, filled with an ageless malice and hatred of God, moved with indescribable hatred for the human race. He plundered our race and left us half dead. You see, when God made man... He made him in his own image and after his own likeness. And when God made man after his own image and after his own likeness, he didn't make him to be a super animal. In fact, the creation of man is quite different from the creation of any animal. A man has quite a different governing principle to govern his behavior than any animal. When God created the animals, he gave the animals a body and he gave them the nucleus of a soul, a personality. Every animal has an outline of a personality. But then, in order to govern that animal's behavior, God implanted into every animal a governing principle that we call instinct. An animal does what it does because it is what it is. It's governed by the instinct of its particular kind. Nobody has to teach a baby, baby bee when it's born how to build a hive. Nobody sends the little baby bee off to the, the bee architectural college to learn how to build a hexagonal figure out of wax and tilt it at exactly the right angle to the sun. Nobody has to teach a bee how to do that. It does it because it's a bee. It does what it does because it is what it is. It's locked into a behavior pattern. Nobody has to teach a baby salmon when it comes down the mighty Fraser River into the Pacific before it bids farewell to its parent stream. Nobody says to the salmon, there's a little... Uh, Navigational school here you need to attend because after you've traversed the length and breadth of the Pacific in due time you'll need to come back to this river ascend this river to the very stream where you were born. 
A salmon doesn't have to learn navigation. It'll come back by instinct, right to the very stream where it was given birth, when its traveling days are done. It does what it does, because it is what it is. It's just an animal, and it's governed, its behavior is governed by the principle of instinct. Now, God didn't do that when he made men. He could have done that. He could have given us a body and a soul, intellect, emotions, and will. And then he could have locked us into a behavior pattern so that we would always have to do what he wanted us to do. But then, you see, he would not have created people. He'd have created puppets. He wouldn't have created people. He would have created super animals. And God wasn't in the business of making super animals. So instead of giving us instinct to govern our behavior, he gave us something quite different. Something that sets man apart from all the animal creation. I keep on reading in National Geographic, how that uh, they're experimenting now with these uh, higher primates. And they're trying to teach them to read and all the rest of it. They're never going to succeed in turning a primate into a human being. Between the most well-developed animal and the smallest child is a gulf as vast as eternity. God has locked those creatures into a behavior pattern by instinct. But he didn't give man instinct to govern his behavior. He gave him a body, he gave him a soul, and then he gave him something he never gave to an animal. He gave man a spirit. And it was the intention of God in the Garden of Eden that the human spirit should be inhabited by the Holy Spirit that man's behavior would be governed by the indwelling Holy Spirit, cooperating with his human spirit, controlling his intellect, his emotions, and his will, and the senses and functions of his body, so that we would do always those things that please the Father, because we were working in cooperation with the indwelling Spirit of God. And then came the robber. And as a result, the human race has been left half dead. When sin came in, the Holy Spirit went out. Man in sin has been robbed. Hopelessly robbed. We're half dead. Already. We've got a body and a soul, intellect, emotions and will, and a spirit that's dead. No governing principle. That's what the Bible means when it says that we are lost. Why it says that we need to be born again. We've been born all wrong the first time. Man in sin, his behavior is governed sometimes by his intellect. Sometimes by his emotions. Sometimes by his will. Sometimes by his senses. 
sometimes by a combination of these things. But he is lost. He doesn't know God. He can't possibly know God. He tries to fill the empty void in his personality with religion or something else. But he's lost. He has fallen among thieves. And he's been left half dead. And, that, and there's absolutely nothing this man in the story could do for himself. He'd been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And there he lay by the side of the road, utterly incapable of helping himself. And that's where the devil has left us. Half dead. Spiritually dead. No governing principle in your life outside of yourself. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit when you come to Christ. For when a person comes to Christ, what he does, he washes you clean inside with the precious blood of Christ so that your body and your being is now a fit place of habitation for the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit comes back into your human spirit and brings you back to life again so that you can now work in cooperation your human spirit with the Holy Spirit and be the kind of person that God intends you to be. But there you are right now, lying by the side of the road half dead. Left him for dead. That's the picture of ruin. And that's the first part of the story, and the Lord Jesus wants us to think about it and ponder it, and think about this man thought he could work his own way to heaven. Jesus said to him, in effect, you can't do that, mister. You're already half dead. And you can't love God the way you ought to love him. And you don't even love your neighbor the way you ought to love him. So don't talk about getting to heaven by your own strength. You're half dead already. What you need is something else. Along comes religion. First of all, there came a priest, a certain priest, came that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. And what do you make of that? Well, that's religion for you. You see, men think that they can solve the problem by being religious. That somehow, if they're religious, if they get baptized, if they go to church, if they partake of Holy Communion, that somehow or other these things will get them to heaven. Well, the Lord Jesus now introduces religion and shows you that religion won't help you get to heaven. You've got a priest and a Levite. Now, the world is full of religion. That's the devil's masterpiece, you see, is to manufacture false religions for people to believe so that they'll think they're going to heaven when really they're not going there at all. So they'll think they're making brownie points with God when actually they're dead still in sin. 
desperately needing something that no religion on this earth can ever give them. The priest and the, re the, the, the Levite actually represent the very best in religion. There is only one religion that God ever founded on this planet, and that was Judaism. In the Old Testament, it's called in the New Testament the Jews' religion. And Paul, before he was saved, before he met Christ, said that he was an expert in the Jews' religion. But he was still lost and going to hell. He needed to meet Christ, although he was very religious. His actual religion made him the enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this man, the, the, the priest and the, the Levite, they actually represent, if you're going to have religion, well, this is the very best that's available in religion. The both men were schooled in the scriptures, that is the Old Testament. They both had ready access to the Bible, to the Old Testament. They'd studied their Bible, they'd given their lives, the pair of them, to the work of God, as they understood it. Both had been uh, ordained clergy over the only religion ever propagated on this earth by divine sanction. Both were ministers of Old Testament Judaism. And the Lord Jesus introduces them into the story to illustrate that even the very best of religion is not going to help you get to heaven. Not even the very best of it. Let's look at the priest for a moment. He represents the rights of religion, the religious rights. Because the Old Testament religion, you see, was full of ceremonies and rituals. There was an altar and there was a temple. There were offerings and sacrifices. There was a very elaborate ritualistic system. Ceremonial cleansing ritualistic observance. They could bring a burnt offering or a peace offering or a meal offering or a trespass offering or a sin offering. There were the morning and the evening sacrifices. There were robes and rituals and all the paraphernalia of religion. And all of it, mind you, in the Old Testament, sanctioned and inspired by God. Well, here was a priest. He was an expert in all that kind of thing. All that ritual religion could offer was summed up in that man. He came to where the man was, lying in all his desperate need, and he passed him by on the other side. He had nothing to offer to help somebody who was already half dead. My friend, you can know all there is to know about ritual and still go to hell. That's not going to get you to heaven. This man represented the very best in ritual religion. And he couldn't help that man by the wayside. Nothing for him. Nothing at all. He gathers his robes around him and edges himself past on the other side. That's the priest. That's ritual. But not only were the rites of religion unable to help that man, neither could the rules of religion. That's what the Levite represented. He was an expert 
in the Mosaic law. All the duties that were connected with the temple. He was an expert teacher of the law of the Old Testament. He could tell you all about the Ten Commandments. He could actually name for you all 613 commandments that made up the Old Testament law. And not only that, as a, as, a, as a Levite, as a teacher of the law, he'd been to the rabbinical schools and he knew not only about the written law, but what the Jews called the oral law. And they had invented hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of other minutiae details required if a person was going to keep the Mosaic law. The rules of religion this man knew all about that. He could quote them all off by heart. Every one of them. He comes to where this man lay in all his desperate need and passed him by on the other side. You see, not only can the rites of religion not get you to heaven, neither can the rules of religion. What on earth use would it be to say to that man, lying by the side of the road, let's try circumcision. Let's, let's try baptism. See if that will help. My friend, that fellow didn't need to get baptized, he needed to get saved. He didn't need some religious rites administered to him. He needed somebody who could help him. Or the Levite comes and says, I'll recite the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all. That man didn't need that. He needed someone who could help him. And so the Lord Jesus paints the first picture, a picture of ruin. The man's half dead. He's been robbed. He's lying lifeless, and half dead, almost lifeless by the side of the road. And along comes religion. The rites of religion and the rules of religion. They pass him by on the other side. They can't help him. Nobody knew that better than Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on to give us a picture of redemption. The robbers have come. Religion has come. And now the Redeemer has come. As you think of redemption as the Lord Jesus paints the picture, you're introduced to a person and you're introduced to a process and you're introduced to a promise but it says oh I love those buts in the Bible every time you see the word but in your Bible you need to stop and see what comes right before it there's always going to be a change either for better or for worse when you have that little word but but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. 
In other words, the man, the person who is going to help this poor fellow who's been robbed and left half dead is not religion, but a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know about the Samaritan, you must remember that he was only half Jew. He was half Jew and half pagan. And the Jews themselves wanted nothing whatsoever to do with him. He was despised and rejected by them. The last person that they would ever want to help them if they were in this man's condition was a Samaritan. Had no use for them whatsoever. Now we have no trouble identifying the Samaritan in the story that the Lord Jesus told. He deliberately uh, used the Samaritan to illustrate himself. Because you see, a Samaritan was only half Jew. And he was half pagan. If you read their history, you'll find out that's how they came to be. The Lord Jesus, when he came, he was only half Jew, you see. Now it's perfectly true that he could trace his ancestry with absolute purity right back to David, the founding father of the Hebrew royal family, and he could trace his lineage right back to Abraham, the founding father of the Hebrew racial family. If ever there was a man who was a Jew, it was Jesus. He could trace his ancestry, he could go over to the temple and show you the records through his mother, his ancestry going right back to David through one of his younger sons, Nathan. Or he could take you over to the other ledger and show you the ancestry of his foster father, Joseph, who'd adopted him and show his ancestry through that line of the family went right back to David through Solomon. There wasn't a purer-blooded Jew ever lived than Jesus. But it still remains true he was only part Jew because he was part God. The Samaritan was only part Jew. The Lord Jesus he was born into Jewish family, he was born of the Virgin Mary, but he was conceived of the Holy Ghost. He was not only man, he was God. Absolutely God, overall blessed forevermore. And so it is the Samaritan who helps him. The man that the Jews despised and rejected almost as much as they despised and rejected the Lord Jesus. It says, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. How about that? He was on a journey, and he deliberately came to where he was. That's what Jesus did. He came from the mansions of glory out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. He was on a journey. He was going somewhere. He was coming down here. 
And he deliberately entered into human life by way of a virgin's womb. He put on human flesh and arrayed himself in a body just like ours so that he could come to where we were. And not only that, he went to Calvary. He not only took upon himself a body like ours, but on the cross of Calvary, he took upon himself our sins. Redemption, the Lord Jesus teaches, is not in a religion. It's in a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll notice what he did. He poured in oil and wine. Oil in the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit. Wine in the, in, the, in the Bible speaks of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before a man in that lost condition, half dead, robbed, lying helpless by the side of the road, can get where he wants to go, Jesus has to come. And he pours in the oil. The oil is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, first of all, has to go to work upon a person's heart and life until he realizes how desperate he needs what Jesus has to offer. And the, vi the wine speaks of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that alone can cleanse us from the wounds of sin. The Lord Jesus poured in the oil and the wine And then he took him to an inn. He took him to some people who could look after him. My friend, when the Lord Jesus finds you half dead, and he lifts you up and seats you in the place where he was seated before, he'll bring you to the inn. He'll bring you amongst those who can take care of you, and minister to you and help you. That's the process, you see. And then you have the promise. On the morrow, it says, he departed and he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay you. You see, that Samaritan was going somewhere. He wasn't going to stay. So he left this man in the care of those who could take care of him. And he said, now, friends, he said, I'm coming back one of these days. I'm coming back. But in the meantime, I'm making every provision. And anything you do beyond the line of duty, I'll repay you. There's a day coming. But I'll take care of all that. I'll repay you. What about the two pence? Well, you know, people say all kinds of strange things about those two pence. Some have maintained it's the two sacraments, breaking bread and baptism. Some have suggested it's the two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Seems more likely to me that it represents the two days. 
A man would work all day in those days for a penny. It represented a day's wage. He gives him the equivalent of two days' pay to take care of him. Because he said, I'm coming back. One infers, of course, that he was coming back on the third day. A day with the Lord, the Bible says, is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. There are lots of people who think that it's been two days now since the Lord Jesus went on his journey, went back home. And he's coming back now real soon. One wouldn't want to build a doctrine on it. I have a friend down in Florida that makes a doctrine out of this, but that's a silly thing to do. But it certainly seems to fit anyway. It's nearly two days, two thousand years now, since the Lord Jesus went away. And he says, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to reward those that have taken care of those that I have entrusted to and if you're saved this morning, that's what your responsibility is and mine. We're to take care of those that the Lord entrusts to us along the way. Ruin, religion, redemption. The Lord Jesus is still in the same business of coming where you are to pour in the oil and the wine to sit you where he sits himself on high to entrust you to those who can look after you with the promise that is coming again. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much this morning. We think of the words of that hymn, Man of Sorrow, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless. Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed hosts to bring. Then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Should there be someone this morning that's not yet had the oil and the wine poured into their deep heart's needs, may this be the day when they'll find the Savior when he'll find them. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Amen.